Actually, what we need to do is sometimes not be at the cutting edge all the time because some customers, okay, that's nice, but I just want to do maybe quite basic, simple stuff for this use case. So actually, we've actually broadened what we do. So the journey isn't about getting smarter and smarter all the time. Sometimes it's about reining it in and being simpler. Guided by over 25 years in the data and research industry and assisting innovators with investment banking and advisory services, Seema Vasa brings you Data Gurus, a leading market research podcast that offers actionable insights for business acceleration and value creation. Join her as she speaks with key innovators in the space to bring you up to speed with the current state and the future of data analytics and data ecosystems. This is Data Gurus. Tired of market research solutions that put your project in a box? At Paradigm Sample, we approach market research support with customized and consultative solutions. Whether you need help with questionnaire design, survey programming, or online data collection, we're ready to assist. Let us know your needs and we can customize a solution just for you. Learn more at ParadigmSample.com. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. Today, I have Ben Hookway, who is CEO of Relevant Insights. Welcome, Ben. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Thank you for joining me. I know you were on holiday last week, so this is a nice way to come back into the business. And I know, nice gentle reintroduction to business. Yeah, before we get started about understanding about your company and what it does, which is quite fascinating, I thought we could just start with you just sharing a little bit about your journey to this point in time. Sure. So being in, I guess, technology all of my career, I'm based in the UK. I'm from Scotland originally. And quite early on in my career, I ended up having the chance to move out to the States, the dot-com bubble, which was a fantastic experience. So I spent three years on in DC and then three years in San Francisco. You know, all the cliches of the dot-com boom, which then came to an end, you know, came back to the UK and then ended up founding a mobile phone software business, which we sort of bootstrapped while selling into South Korea. And then, you know, I got here and co-founder of that one, got some VC funding for that. And then we exited that business to Mentor Graphics, who are based in Portland, big company in uh, chip design and EDA. And then I sort of ran business development for them in Asia, a lot of time in South Korea and Taiwan and China, places like that. And then what happens is when you get funding for a company from a VC and you exit, or in other words, when you get lucky once, they think you get lucky every time. So after I had a pretty decent relationship with the venture capital company, and then, you know, after I was kind of sick of flying out to Asia all the time, I was doing some other things and they said, well, you should go and have a look at this company we've invested in, which was this research and development project coming out of a, a university in, in the North of England. And it was fascinating technology and. I started consulting and then time went by, became CEO, and that ended up transforming into relative insight. Very fascinating. And it's amazing how much, how many geographies you've covered throughout your career. Must That's again, another a topic for another podcast, but always fascinating to see how people jump around and travel both for business and pleasure. Let's talk about when you first joined Relative Insights, you know, the, the use case was very different than what it is today and, and how you kind of made that pivot. But actually, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about exactly what, what, what the company does. Yes. And then yeah. we can talk about the use case. 
Who are we and why am I talking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so Relative Insight is a text analytics technology SaaS platform. So our customers license our tech in order to analyze the unstructured text data that they have. And most companies have got an awful lot of this stuff. So examples of that could be review data, or it could be the open ends in surveys, or it could be social, or it could be news, and so on and so on. And almost all companies have this data flowing around, and we provide a, a platform that allows them to drive business insights out of that data. So that's kind of at our core what we do. We license software and a bit of managed service to help customers do that. I guess why we do that? Well, most customers and most you know stakeholders use business intelligence sources, which are usually quant driven because they're important, right? And so we use them ourselves in relative insight. So if you were to sort of ask an exec what their sort of top 10 sources of business intelligence are, usually they will say, you know, quant numbers, so obviously like sales, gross margin, site traffic, things like this, NPS score, for example. And these are all great, but they are limited in that they tell you what is going on. But the promise of text and unstructured text is that can tell you why things are happening. So for example, you know, your NPS score might be going up or going down, but the open end response in the NPS survey will tell you why it's going up or it's going down. So that's why we're so excited about it. Not so easy though, because it, why doesn't anyone do it? Well, there's lots of reasons about that, which we'll get into, but you know, it's unstructured, it's messy. And traditionally, the output of text analytics has been sort of quite vague. I mean, if anyone's listening to this right now, I'm sure word clouds are popping into their heads and they're kind of rolling their eyes thinking, oh, no, he's going to talk about word clouds. Well, I'm not, don't worry. <laughs> but what we do is like we get our customers past the vagueness of the output of that qualitative sort of word cloud type stuff. And we turn it fundamentally into metrics for our customers. We do this in three areas primarily. Uh, one is consumer analytics, market research type world. The second is customer experience analytics. So how can you sort of analyze the language that you're using with your customers or that your customers are using with you and customer experience to improve that? And then the last is employee engagement actually is starting to come up. So obviously is talent a really important part of our business competition at the moment and really understanding your workforce is really important. So we get used for that as well. And there's a lot of software platforms that are collecting open-end responses and pulsing employees to get level of satisfaction and engagement. And I imagine your platform could host all that data, not host, can use that data to provide some context. That there. is exactly right. So we are an analytic layer. So we focus not on getting more data. Like normally customers, our customers have got quite enough data, thanks very much already. What we do is specialize on sort of multiplying by 10 the value they get out of the text data they are collecting anyway. It's so funny. I find that we've gone from, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have to now having loads of data that's accessible to saying, now, how do I contextualize all this information? I'm getting sources from you know, call centers, sources from the chatbots that's on my website, survey data. So how do I contextualize all this unstructured, for lack of a better word, data and infuse it into decision making? And we're going to get to that. But tell us a little bit about how Relative Insights 
that early use case? Because I, as a parent, I'm fascinated, but just in general, the pivot from the initial use case to the the commercial use case. Okay, so originally, Relative Insight was a research project in conjunction with security services in the UK. So our job was to uncover people masquerading online. And in particular, we focused on child protection. So our job was to uncover whether this person really is a 13-year-old girl, or if they're a 40-year-old man doing a very sophisticated impression of a 13-year-old girl. So this is a, a difficult problem at all kinds of levels. But from a data point of view, it's particularly tricky because the bad guys are really good at it to the point where if you were to give suspect language to a standard text analytics algorithm, it would probably tell you it is a 13-year-old girl. So because the bad guys are like 96% perfect. And so when you're that good, like you can fool systems. So what we had to come up with was a system which would kind of figure this out. And what we ended up coming up with is a principle which to this day underpins everything we do in Relative Insight. And that is what we call a comparative linguistic approach. So what we would do is that we would get databases of genuine 13-year-old girl, verified 13-year-old girl language from the security services. Then we get suspect language. And then what you actually want to do is compare them. And our output was the 4% difference in the language. And it was the differences actually would catch people. What you say doesn't actually matter. What really matters are the differences between you and somebody contextually relevant to you. That's the stuff that really registers. So that's what the system does. It's quite a simple concept. It's incredibly powerful. So, you know, we did do some good. You know, the software was sort of bought by some security services and was used in investigations, which led to sort of the, the break up of some pedophile rings and things like that, which was fantastic. Uh, but it is quite tricky actually to make a living from these use cases, which is frustrating, but there you go. In order to support that work at the time, we started looking at other applications of the same principles of language analytics, but in, in different areas. And we started looking at marketing and pretty quickly scored some great contracts and really interesting projects with you know people like Saatchi and Saatchi and Unilever and, and people like this. And the hard bit was actually learning the marketing world. The, the technology was easy compared with learning the new industry. But once we kind of crafted that, we ended up sort of really productizing what we had and turning the, the company into what it is now, where we have you know hundreds of customers most of which actually is, is out of North America. We have people like Comcast. We have people like Nespresso. We have, you know, Sony Music. We have re like really fantastic brands working with us. So we talked about, you know, the initial use case, but let's put some more context around a use case. And I think we've talked about beauty and you did some research around looking at different data by age segment. And you've uncovered some, you know, what, People on a day-to-day -day basis might not even think about, but when you do the analysis, you, you really picked up some key learnings yeah. there. Yeah. So maybe I've yeah I've run through the cosmetics one, and then the other one is maybe I'll talk about some stuff with that with Diet Coke, which is quite a good illustration. So th these were two you know really early projects that we were involved with. So one of our customers was a cosmetics brand, and they're associated with a kind of older demographic, and they were trying to reach into a younger group, but their sort of content 
communication strategy didn't seem to be working. So what we did is that we got a whole bunch of reviews of cosmetics in North America. And what we did is that we split them by age and we had thousands of reviews left by people in their twenties and thousands of reviews left by people in their fifties. Now, by the way, how did you know the age? It was marked in the, okay. Review. yeah. Okay. Got it. So that, that, that was a metadata tag. We'll come back to metadata. Most text data is aligned with some really interesting metadata with it. That's the key actually. So we had these reviews, we had it, the metadata tag was age. So we had, you know, a million words of, you know, the average novel is like 120,000 words. We had like a few novels of 20 somethings and then 50 something. So what you want to do is actually compare them. And what we, the system does then is it will look at, okay, what did 20 somethings talk about significantly more than 50 year olds and vice versa? Because if you just do the analysis on its own, it will look quite similar. You really need to analyze what is statistically significantly different. And the, the kind of classic here was if you're in your twenties, you tended to say you use the word wear makeup. And if you're in your fifties, you tended to say apply makeup. Now that sounds always trivial, but if you're trying to engage with a particular group, this stuff can be really important. And you go back to the customer and they guess what? They were saying apply our product every day for great results. So they were saying the wrong thing, but didn't even know they were saying the wrong thing because what comparison does is that it discovers critical insights. Whereas most analytic approaches tend to be very search-based. So you have to think of the idea and then search for evidence of your idea. But nobody would ever have thought to search for where or search for a plot. So they ended up redoing their communication and getting some good results out of, out of doing that. Similarly, you know, people who own a DSLR camera, if you look at DSLR camera forums, compared to everyone else, you tend to say you will shoot images. Everyone else takes pictures. And that's why every Apple poster campaign says shot on iPhone. It doesn't say taken. And that partially because shot so represents a persona we all think we can probably aspire to. Everyone thinks they can be a great photographer with a phone. So those are like two like really quite simple but powerful examples. And then I'll give you another one with say Diet Coke. You know, they had like a year's worth of mentions of Diet Coke on social. And of course they were doing the usual stuff like, well, give me a word cloud and it would say Diet Coke, pizza, ice, party, you know, whatever. And sort of, I guess, reassuring, but not particularly insightful. The key thing we did there was that text data came, one of the metadata points was time. So you can split that data set into how people talked about Diet Coke before the ad campaign, how they talk about it after the ad campaign, and the difference is the effect the ad campaign on how people perceive Diet Coke. And that is like a 10x more valuable outcome from exactly the same data than what they were doing, which was the kind of, you know, sentiment and right, and right, right, right. things like that. Let's go back to, I just want to clarify a couple of things. You talked about search versus discovery. In search, I feel like you almost need to have a hypothesis that you're trying to validate and say, uh, you know, prove or disprove th this hypothesis. Is that correct? From your perspective, when you use yes, that? I think that's true, and you know, but I think both approaches are valid. I think with text in particular, it's quite easy to fall into the trap of confirmation bias. If you go back to the Diet Coke one, for instance, okay, the fact that you know the Diet Coke was associated with you know pizza, ice parties, okay, that's great. However, 
if you go off and do exactly the same data collection for Diet Pepsi, it looks almost exactly the same. You know, it was like Diet Pepsi, ice pizza, bought party. In fact, you could say soft drink. Yeah, and, and it'll it, say you know, similar. Yeah. Yes. So it, it's quite easy to be duped into thinking that just because you're associated with some language, that is a unique attribute for your brand or your service or products or whatever it might be, when actually it's not. So actually, one of the other things we did there was what you really want to do, Diet Coke doesn't really care how people talk about Diet Coke. I mean, they do. But what's more interesting is to understand what's the difference between how people talk about Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi. And then that gives you something to work with, something to either double down on or yep. some issues to or, address. Or rectify. Right. Makes sense. And this is different from sentiment analysis. I think a lot of you know social media listening kind of goes into using text for analytics, but it's really driven to understand sentiment. This is different. This might bring sentiment into the forefront, but it also brings other language into it as well, other attributes. That's a key thing. So I think so. sentiment is normally quite a broad metric and it can be useful at maybe top level, but when you get into maybe second level uh, analytics, it kind of falls away. And so one of the key results of, the, of our approach is that the differences that we surface are always expressed as a metric. And this is key because what we're seeing, and actually we're seeing more of this now with ChatGPT and other LLMs and AI coming up, is that all of a sudden now everyone's really quite interested in text analytics because you can use ChatGPT. What we're seeing with our customers though is that all of a sudden stakeholders, senior stakeholders are now interested in text analytics because of ChatGPT. But on the whole, what people are doing is kind of doing summarization with ChatGPT, which can be very useful, but is not a metric, right? And stakeholders, what they are normally interested in is a metric. It doesn't matter what the data source is. They like metrics because it's easier to understand. And crucially, it's easier to align companies and business decisions and teams, around the metric. Right. Yep. You can't really align a company around a paragraph of unstructured text, which changes every week. So when we say, let's say, for example, we're doing customer experience analytics, and, and we know that this month, basically, we will say there's a 1.8 times more prevalence in terms of pricing and your service plans compared to the trailing six months. So obviously, it's useful to know that that is an issue. It's in the forefront. Yeah. But yep. being able to express that as a metric 1.8 times is incredibly useful when you're then, like most inside teams, have to communicate to a, a stakeholder, right? So communicating the 1.8 is actually the most valuable part out of that quite often. So you mentioned that you have a lot of clients primarily in the United, the United States. And I know one of your key missions is to get this type of measurement into the C-suite to be able to provide context for all this unstructured data and be able to, you know, help companies make decisions. Where are you in that journey? How has it been adopted? Just give us kind of your perspective of where you are. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't talk about specific customers, but we have got several very well-known brands who use the analytics we provide in their CEO dashboards. Which is great because, you know, what I want is that when we ask senior people what your business intelligence source is, 
you know, we want one of their top 10 to be, you know, text-based open end right. tech. Yeah. So they are absolutely doing that. Um, I think we're seeing quite an interesting dynamic going on with AI coming out. Just, I mean, obviously, you know, everyone's probably rolling their eyes and I know it's another chat GPT blog, but what's quite fascinating is how the, everyone is going through their own personal Gartner hype cycle journey. Yes, right? for sure. And some are just at the beginning and then some would have punched all the way through it and have concluded this stuff's great, but it's no, it's not on its own. It's not going to be good enough. What it has done undoubtedly has the more sophisticated customers who are maybe a bit further down their journey undoubtedly has put the potential of text analytics for making game-changing business decisions at the top of the corporate agenda. That has absolutely happened. And so the way that companies are assessing text analytics capability, it's no longer a feature they might have in, a, in some other tool, but they're starting to regard it as a strategic capability in their infrastructure, which is very exciting because that's normally the first indication in technology that this is now a theme and, and people are, are really focusing on it. And do you think that, well, let me ask you this, as you see the adoption of text into, let's say, the, the CEO dashboard for some of the clients that you work with, are there follow-on questions? Are you getting a ton of inquiry as the next step in terms of introducing these metrics that you guys provide? Like, I, I don't know anybody who looks at a metric and doesn't ask at least five other questions after yeah. that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that the way to think about it is we sort of have this sort of pyramid. So at the top is like the, the North Star metric. And that's how everything's distilled down to this, the very senior stakeholders. But underneath the top of that pyramid, there's like the next level down, which might be actually there's maybe five metrics actually go into that. That top. support that North Star. Okay. Correct. And then Got it, it sort of, and then it, it trickles on down. So what we do is that we enable our customers who tend to be analysts and head of consumer insight, head of customer experience analytics and so on to represent the right metric to the right seniority. But if the detail is needed, it's all part of that to that top one. There's another aspect though, which is kind of related to this, which we're starting to see as well, which is again, it's sort of related to the AI boom, but there's no questions being asked around. Are three key things. Like what one is metrics, which we've talked about, and then the other is evidence and then audit. These are becoming quite interesting. So LLMs or you know AI in, in the popular press at the moment, LLMs are a great tool and they're fantastic tech. There's a couple of drawbacks to them. One is that they are black boxes. Okay. So it gives you an answer, but you cannot verify why it gave you that answer. That's one problem. And the second is that they sometimes they're prone to what's called a hallucination. So you know, fundamentally, they are sort of predictive statistical models, and they'll predict what they think is statistically most likely. And sometimes that's not actually, they misconstrue things. So what tends to happen then is that, okay, so senior stakeholders, they want, first of all, metrics, and we, we've talked about that. But below that, why do they want metrics? One of the reasons is if you're making a consequential business decision, you need the evidence of why that decision is being made. And if analytics are part of that process, you need to be able to go back to the analytic workflow and be able to see the evidence for the- Defend uh, it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And if you rely completely on an LLM, you can't do that. By itself, right? Yes. Yeah, without that. the other tools that might leverage an LLM 
or ChatGPT, whatever. Or, and, and that augments it, yeah. And augment it, yeah. No, yeah. and that makes perfect sense. This is the thing that I always wonder. Like, there's so much technology and there's so much stuff that we leave that's behind the machine, if you will. And I just am fascinated by the fact that some people or companies, and maybe this is to the point of where people are in their journey in leveraging AI, that they're not opening the black box and saying, wait a second, I can't just trust this, you know, on faith or, or I like the output. This makes sense. I'm going to use it. And I think we'll see more questioning. Yeah. Evidence. Right. I, I, I think for sure. I mean, it does vary by use case, to be fair. I mean, I think there are use cases where you don't, you know, as long as it gets you a good result, you don't really care how it got to it. And we are starting to see questions asked of LLMs and maybe it's definitely hesitation. And I think that there's another facet to what you described, which is then going to be regulation. So if you're in a highly regulated industry, healthcare, financial services, for instance, the third thing after evidence is going to be audit. So the problem is that legislation is constantly trying to catch up with technology, especially in AI. And if you're in an industry where you're used to being audited and you're using LLMs in your decision-making, then if your audit trail stops with the computer told me to do it, that's not a great... And, that's not, that not defensible. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, what, so one of the most interesting things we, we, we're doing at the moment is combining LLMs with the metrics that we provide so that your sort of instant output is this sort of great summarization narrative, but with defensible metrics inserted into that. So that's looking really quite exciting, that kind of angle. What are some of the objections that you get from clients or prospects, I'll say, when they look at your platform and not usability perspective, like the data that you provide, the metrics that you provide, what are some of the challenges that clients or prospects give you? Yeah. So I think the first thing to do is kind of to get customers to think about their data in a slightly different way than they're used to thinking about it. So I'll give you an example. Probably the most common data source we assess is, is surveys, actually, open-end surveys. And, you know, people are used to sort of analyzing surveys, certainly from a text point of view, in, in a quite sort of vanilla fashion. But what we have to sort of educate people with is you have your, from our point of view, the text data, the primary data source, but then you might have the age range of the respondent, the income range of the respondent, geography, what service they've got, what product they've got, all kinds of different things. So the first step, I would say it's an objection, but the first step is more of a, an awakening of you don't just have to look at this text as one block. What you can do with this is all of a sudden you can say, well, wait a minute, how do people of this age range respond to my survey compared to other age ranges? What's different with what these people are concerned with? How much more are they talking about one aspect or another? Same thing for, say, income group might have different aspects. People in different geographies might have different areas of concern. So you can go from this quite flat data structure into this kind of multi-dimensional thing. So that normally it's just inspiring people to like find out what's the most important thing to you because you can go and create it. And so once people have sort of opened their minds up with that, we can really help them drive on. And then I think there's all I think in, in analytics there's always a sort of the manual point. One of the things we are doing is 
quite often once people figure out what's important to them, they want to do the same analysis flow all the time. So now we've started introducing functions in the tool, which will automate that. So you can just pr basically program it to like automatically get the data, automatically do the analysis flow. And the, so you come in Monday morning, switch on Relative Insight, and you've got the answer. That's fantastic, right? Yeah. No, that's, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, especially in, in the existing environment where budgets are tight, teams are tight, you know, speed of insight is kind of everything at the moment. It's huge. It's yeah. huge. You know, I'm still fascinated by the statistic that 90% of products fail, right? And so, you know, that speed to insight is critical, but I'm on this journey to figure out why is it still 90% if there's this research and tools like yours and other platforms where you can essentially stage gate your innovation every step of the way. Yeah. I mean, I think... That's something I wrestle with, like as a product I, company, that is, yeah. you know, that's it. Like the products, everything. There's a few myths, I think, in, in tech and SaaS in particular. I think first off, it's incredibly tempting as a vendor to believe your own hype and think that it's a great idea because it's your idea. So like what's obvious to you as a vendor, you know, sometimes customers really don't care that much or what you think is just a minor irritation in usability to the customer might be, it's just, I can't, you know, I can't spend half an hour struggling with it, you know? So it's really important to be actually sort of quite humble and try and talk to customers as much as possible. I think the other thing is, I think we see a lot of vendors go out and try and do pure SaaS with analytics and that can shortchange customers. We do quite a lot of managed service with customers. There's zero value to anyone, but the vendor or the customer included, to just sort of buy the software, get trained, and stay see you yeah. later. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll see you at the next quarterly check-in. Yeah. yeah, you know, you've not done anything. No one's inspired you. No, you know, no one's brought best practices. So there's a lot of pressure on vendors to, to minimize that. But I think that is changing itself. Yeah, no, it's. I think it's important because at the end of the day, we are people who are bringing innovation platforms such as yours. It's still change management. It's still helping clients manage through the change and understand the value of the data or the solutions that you bring to them. Yeah. And, and I think that there's another aspect is, is that as technology becomes more mainstream, text analytics is actually quite a good example of this. In the early days, all of our customers were quite advanced users because you had to be kind of really into it in order to buy relative insight, you know, five years ago. But as tech analytics is becoming more of a mainstream uh, capacity. Actually, what we need to do is sometimes not be at the cutting edge all the time because some customers, okay, that's nice, but I just want to do maybe quite basic, simple stuff for this use case. So actually, we've actually broadened what we do. So the journey isn't about getting smarter and smarter all the time. Sometimes it's about reining it in and being simpler. Totally agree. Because you have those early adopters, but it's few and far between, right? It's those, it's that middle group that you really want to target and say, what's the right use case for you to get used to a new solution? And I don't need all the bells and whistles. It's just help me basically. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining me today. Really enjoyed our conversation. And, you know, I look forward to seeing where Relative Insights goes and, you know, look forward to keeping me in touch. Yeah, no, we're on a good journey. We're really excited about the future. And, and thanks very much for asking me on. Thank you for listening to the Data Gurus podcast brought to you by Infinity Squared. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and 
be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.